Well, uh, I appreciate that invitation, Neil, because probably tonight after we go to bed, about half of them are going to go pack their cars and leave. <laughs> the, uh, I was going to tell you my story tonight, and Neil asked me to give it kind of in an expanded version, and so that's what I'll do. Uh, I was raised in a little town in North Louisiana, skinny kid, raised in obscurity, no plans, never thought through anything, just, just a naive little kid who kind of enjoyed life day to day, never planned anything, had no idea what he wanted to become. My dad had a construction company, and we, he built highways, and every summer and Saturday, et cetera, then that's what we did. We worked on that construction crew helping in the highway construction. Because I just assume that's what I do. I never gave it any real thought. I graduated from high school. Well, I came to, came to Christ. My family never went to church. I mean, I knew nothing about the Bible. I didn't have a Bible. And my family never went to church. My dad was very strongly against uh, preachers. He just despised them. And, of course, he passed that on to us. I mean, he would talk bad about them constantly. Basically, he said they were lazy, couldn't get a real job. And, I mean, that was his approach. We didn't know any different. My mom was a believer, uh, struggled to even exemplify the Christian life in the marriage because my dad was uh, very hard. He was a very difficult man. Uh, when I was a uh, <clears throat> junior in high school, February, uh, I was sitting at my, the dining room table in our home reading a book. I love to read. And my, my mom came walking by with a big coat on, and it was cold outside. I mean, it was one of those February evenings. Like I said, I mean, it's just colder than a mother-in-law's kiss. I mean, it's just horrible. <laughs> I, I mean, everything is just cold. So she comes by walking by, and she's got bundled all up. And, I, and she says, I'm going to church. Would you like to go with me? I didn't know they did church at night. But I just felt sorry for her. And I said, sure, Mom, I'll go with you. So I grabbed my jacket, and I went with her to church. We sat up in the balcony. My mom never felt welcomed at church because she went so infrequently, and so she never felt apart. And so we would sit up in the balcony by ourselves on one, on one wing. But I sat there that night, and I listened to the pastor. We were having a revival. I have no idea what that is. But we were having a revival, the church was, and the pastor was very clear. First time in my life I actually tracked with him the whole sermon. I mean, I'm sitting there listening to everything he says, and tracking with him. I, mean, I, was, I was kind of surprised myself. Well, when it was over, <coughs> uh, there was, I was a pitcher on the baseball team, and the catcher was a guy named David. And David had gotten real religious the summer before. That's about as good as I could do with it. He just got real religious. What he did is he became a Christian. Well, I didn't know that <laughs> stuff, you know. But, but David, uh, David's life changed. And I, I, I mean, I played, we played on the basketball team. I knew David. And we used to pal together until he changed. And then my lifestyle style and his didn't mix. And so, but, but I, I watched this guy. I mean, he was really quite, quite attractive. I mean, he had a good life. And so he was there that night. So he comes running over to where my mom and I are. And he said, hey, Chuck, we're going to, of course, they called me Charles back then. as before I was baptized. But, <laughs> but they... But David says, why don't you come with us tomorrow night? Another buddy named Pat was with Pat Roberts. We'll come out and pick you up. But, I mean, we're going to have a great time. Come on, let's go to, come to church with us tomorrow night. Well, I'm this simple little naive kid. Don't know what's going on. And so I said, well, sure. So they come. I go to church every night that week. I went more that week than I'd had in my whole life. <laughs> well, about Wednesday night, I knew that if there was a God in heaven, I was in serious trouble. I knew that. And so the next week, we're playing baseball. It's baseball season. I had thrown batting practice quite extensively, and then I just jogged out to center field to, you know, shag some fly balls until we rotated into another phase of training. And I'm standing out in the middle of center field on the baseball diamond thinking about these things that I'd heard in church. And so now you've got to realize how naive and how, how uneducated I was. So I asked myself, well, Jeff, are, are you a Christian? And I thought, well... I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Muslim, I couldn't think of anything else. So I said, well, I must be a Christian. But then I thought, yeah, but Chuck, your, your vocabulary, your mouth, your thought life, you are filthy. 
And I thought about that. I thought, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I am one filthy guy. So how can you be a Christian? So then I thought to myself, well, why don't you become like David? Well, I didn't know how to do that. But I thought about that. I've always been analytical. I don't know why, but I've always liked to think things through, wrestle with things, get down to the heart of the matter, peel the onion. I mean, that's just the way I am. And I'm sitting there going through all these things that I'd heard in church. And so finally I said, I, look, I think I caught a fly ball because I was looking at the clouds. And I threw it back in. And I looked back up at the clouds and I thought, I wonder if there's a God up there. And so I prayed. I'd never prayed in my life. Didn't close my eyes. But I said, God, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I don't even know what one is. But if I have never given you my life, I want to do that right now. That, and almost word for word, what I prayed, standing in the middle of that center field. And I cannot tell you how, but I knew something had happened. I was different. Something had happened. And I remember turning around and looking at the center field fence. This is about 12 feet high. And I thought, you know, I can jump that thing. I, I, I don't know where that came from, but I, I, just, I just felt free. I just felt liberated or something. I, I can't just explain it. I never had that happen to me before. But I, and you know what? I went home and I quit cussing. Now, the crews that I worked with every summer and Saturdays and things like this were just filthy mouths. Oh, they were just filthy good. Now, they could operate that machinery just enviously. I mean, I could not believe how, what they could do with those machines. I was totally impressed with them. Liked them. I, I wanted to be like them. But their life was a train wreck. Most of them were divorced. Two or three times they spent the weekends, what I call chasing wild women and drinking. And, and their, their life was just a train wreck. But that was, that, those, were my, those were the ones I looked up to. So guess what? My life became just like theirs. I had the same language, the same thought, the same hopes. One of these days, maybe I can chase those wild women. Sure sounds like fun. And, and that's, that was me. But I went home that, that day and I quit cussing. I can't tell you what a big deal that was. I can't tell you how many I said a day. It was filthy. <coughs> and I quit, except I said five cuss words that second day, that day. My first day I'd come to Christ, I said five cuss words. And I counted them. And I was so embarrassed and so ashamed. I thought, what is that filth coming out of your mouth? What had happened? And all I could figure is that somebody had gone inside and kind of rewired all the circuits. And I was a different person. So <clears throat> I went home. And I, I went to bed. I always read. I like to read. And so I usually go down to the drugstore or someplace and get these juicy novels that had all these sex things in them. And that's what I would read every night. And so I get in bed that night, and I pull off my shelf, the, the latest hot, hot uh, novel, and I'm opening this thing, and I'm thinking, this stuff is filthy. So I just reach over and throw it in the trash. No, 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 wait a minute. What about all those other ones that I got hidden? Those nudie things, you know, I got those all hidden real well. Mom never find those. So I went and dug those things out. And I went and put it in the trash can, and I thought, you know, 10 o'clock when mom and dad go to bed, I'm going to sneak back out, out the back door and put them in our trash can. And so I did. And I went, I sneaked. So they all went to bed. I got all my old filthy books and I sneaked out the back door, opened up and opened up the lid of the trash can and just dumped them all in there, put the trash can back and went back to my room. And then I thought, oh, my word. What if my mom goes out there in the morning <laughs> with an egg carton or something? Opens the top and she sees that. Oh, that's uh, you know. So I go back out, and I dump it all out, and I put all my filth at the bottom of the trash, and then put all the trash back in on top of it. <laughs> Got rid of it. I don't think she ever knew it. I, I hope not, because it was so embarrassing. But something changed me. But you know, there was something else that took place, and I can't explain this either. I can't explain a lot of the things of God. God is so deep. But uh, I had this yearning that I wanted my life to count. I, I, I didn't want to be someone who showed up at church, and I'd seen that, but by this time I'd gone a while. And I see people who show up, and they're nice, sweet people, and they never do anything for God. They just show up. And I thought, God, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that way. Let me tell you a story. I was, I was living in Dallas, Texas my senior year at A&M. And uh, Max Barnett, I was living with Max Barnett. And so Max decided one Sunday night, we'd all go down to First Baptist Church and hear 
the pastor there, a guy named W.A. Criswell, who was just phenomenal pastor. Oh, greatest Bible, one of the greatest Bible teachers ever. So we're down there. Of course, we want to soak it up. So we're sitting on about the third or fourth row. And we're waiting for the, uh, so we get there early. And so I'm sitting there, you know, reviewing my verses. I want to be a good navigator. I want to be using my time well. And so I'm sitting there reviewing my verses. And a couple comes down and sits right behind us. Older couple. And then there's a couple that sits down right across from us, across the aisle. They begin to communicate, talk. And I'm not paying attention. I'm reviewing my verses and trying to use my time wisely. And all of a sudden I realize they're talking about us. And you know what had happened? We got her seat. We had come early and got her seat. And she made the comment she said to her husband, she said, I guess we're going to have to start coming at 530. We're going to get our seat, you know. And I thought to myself, how in the name of God can a couple come and sit under the ministry of W.A. Criswell for 25 years and before that, George W. Truett, who was another great Bible teacher, and wind up like that? How can that happen? In the name of God, how do people become that? after listening to phenomenal preaching for 35 years. And I just, that was just so disdainful for me. I, I, God, please, I beg you, God, don't let, me, don't let me wind up like that. So that was always uh, something that I, uh, I just wanted my life to count. So I, start, I joined everything. I, go to, I go start going to church. I joined everything. I started going every time the doors open. Uh, it upset my dad a little bit. Because my dad liked to work a lot, and uh, he, he liked for me to work with him. And occasionally I'd say, well, you know, Dad, I, uh, it'd be 7 o'clock at night. That's nothing to my dad. And I'd say, Dad, I'd, I'd like to get off and, and, and make it to church. And he would be so upset. <clears throat> but the, uh, I, mean, I went to everything. I graduated, and uh, I, uh, I thought, you know, I want to grow. And it hadn't happened yet. So I'll tell you, the thing that I need to do, I probably need to go to a Baptist school. So I, went, I signed up at Louisiana Baptist College, freshman. Go down there. Here again, wonderful people. It's just like my, my, the youth group at our church. Wonderful people. Well, I mean, just the most loving, kind, sweet, do anything for you people. But nobody got me in the book. The same thing. I went, to high, I went to church, and, and I got lectured at. I got, the, you know, the sermons were preached, and they were probably good. I can't remember a word of them. But I, I, I got sermons preached, and then I go to Louisiana College, and I get more sermons preached, and I get more Sunday school classes where they're taught, and I'm, and I'm not, nobody's getting me in the book. I don't know that. I don't know that you're supposed to be in the Bible. Nobody's ever told me that. So they have a summer... summer uh, camp thing out in New Mexico called uh, Glorietta. This is Baptist. So I think, I'm going to that. That's got to be good. So I go to this Baptist camp for the summer. There's one week, student week. So I go out there and uh, good sermons. So one night is missions night. And so I'm sitting there listening intently and they're talking about how God works through missionaries and what God does through them. And they had some illustrations of some great missionaries and the way God had used them. It's, I'm sitting here enthralled by all this. So when the invitation came, I, I just said, I'm going to be a missionary. So I stand up and I walk down to the front and there was about a dozen of us had made that decision that night. That we, were going to, we volunteered to be missionaries. So the next morning we met with the head of missions for the Baptist convention and uh, he asked me, he said, Chuck, what kind of a missionary do you want to be? You got to realize how naive I am. So I said, you mean there's different kinds? I thought you just put on a pith helmet and went to Africa. I mean, what, what's the deal? <laughs> and he said, no, no, there's all kinds. There's church planters, there's uh, nurses and doctors, and, there's, and he listed a bunch of other ones, and the teachers and uh, uh, pl church planting people. And, and then there's agricultural missionaries. I go, whoa, whoa, tell me what he does. Well, he helps them with their crops and their livestock, and through that gains an interest to share the gospel. I said, that's me. That's what I want to be. So he says, well, does your college have a good ag school? And I said, my college doesn't even have an ag school. He said, well, you need to go to a good ag school. I said, okay. Naive, Chuck. Where is one? He said, well, you're part of the country, probably Texas A&M. I said, okay. Where's Texas A&M? <laughs> he said, well, it's, uh, it's in College Station. I said, okay. Where's College Station? I had no idea. 
But I transferred because I wanted to be a missionary. I wanted to count for God. I wanted my life to count. That was the direction. That's the way God was leading me. And I saddled up and went. And you know what happened that first semester? My little shallow Christian life got exposed. I could not do anything. I tried to witness nothing. I tried to share my faith. I tried to... I tried to ask people about praying. I mean, nothing. I mean, nothing happened. It was the most horrible year of my life. I mean, I was just miserable. This stupid, you know, Texas, there was 8,000 men and no women. Now, that, uh, that'll do something for your weekends. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, like uh, I saved a lot of money to him. I, but uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm there at A&M, and I'm... Uh, I want my life to count, and I'm going to be, but it's not happening. I'm just miserable. And the last month, month of May, a guy named Don Whitehall, who was in, my, who was in the BSU Baptist Student Union with us, he comes by after church. I mean, we were both working out of church, and he says, I want you to come out of my room at 1 o'clock. We're going to listen to a tape. We're going to what? We're going to listen to a tape. I had no idea what that was. We're going to listen to a tape? Well, I go to the, I say, okay, so I show up at 1 o'clock, and he's got this big old German wallen sack with these two big seven-inch reels on the top. And he says, we're going to listen to Max Barnett, and Max is speaking on the possibilities of a life. I said, okay. So he hits the button, and this tape begins to go. And I'm telling you, I sat there enthralled as he talked about illustration after illustration, instance after instance of how God had used somebody to accomplish his work and done great and mighty things through people. And I'm sitting there thinking, God, that's what I want. Uh, I mean, it was just unbelievable. So Max preaches for about an hour. So I go to Don. I say, hey, Don, uh, nobody ever locked their doors. I mean, there was 8,000 men. We, nobody locked their doors. I said, let me come out of your room maybe this Saturday and listen to that tape again. Okay, I'll have it on. So I go by and I look at this monstrous machine here and I go, okay, click. And it goes. And I listen to it again. And I'm just enraptured by how God can use a man. He talked about what God had done through him, what God had done through Dawson Trauman, and several others. And I thought, you know, God, is, is it possible that you can do that through a, a, a skinny little... Raised in obscurity, little kid from North. Could you do that through me? And uh, that was what I longed for. Anyway, I listened to that tape four times that last month. The last time I, I took my last course, my, my final in etymology. That's bugs for you who don't. I took my <laughs> final in bugs. And uh, really how to kill those maggots. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I tell Don, I said, Don, can I come out and listen one more time? And he said, I'll have it on. And I took a yellow tablet and a yellow pencil, wooden pencil, and I sat there and I turned that thing on and he would speak and I'd stop and I'd write down. I wrote down the whole tape word for word. It took me about two and a half hours. I wrote down the whole tape. So I go out and get in my car. I'm all packed up. I head home. I said, God, I just, I, I just, I just need to talk to you. Could you, could you show me someplace that I could just kind of peel off this two-lane highway that I'm on? And go down the road a bit and just meet with you. And I had barely gotten the words out of my mouth where I looked up and I saw this little red dirt road that kind of peeled off. And so I took it. I just peeled off and went down this road about two miles. Pulled over to the side close to the ditch and I, I got out and I got my Bible. And I down through the ditch and I crossed through the barbed wire fence and I went out and I sat down in the middle of that pasture with my Bible. <clears throat> And I reviewed the verses that, second, the first verse, I memorized the first verse that I had ever memorized, sitting in that cow pasture, reading with my little King James Bible. But it said, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And I begged, I said, God, could it be possible that I could be that guy whose heart is perfect toward you? Could, would that be possible? And that's a verse that Max had used. Then I went to Jeremiah 33, 3, another verse that Max had used, and I memorized that one, sitting in that cow pasture. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great things which thou knowest not. I memorized that verse, and I, and I asked, God, would you, would you do great things through my life? I went home, and I, my, I'd never memorized Scripture, and Max didn't... Uh, 
kind of teach it that much, but I went home and I got my st a little stenographer's notepad. And I had my little red Bible that my mom had gave me for graduation from high school, and I had read the New Testament. Oh, boy. I, I, my junior year in college, I read the New Testament. And I had marked with red ink all the good verses that I found. Well, I went back and started looking at those, red ver those verses that I'd underlined, and I thought, you know, man, that's a good verse. I need to memorize that. And I'd memorize that verse that night. Before I went to bed, I'd memorize that verse. Next night, I'd come in from work, my dad. I'd get my little stenographer's notebook out, and I would review the three or four verses that I'd memorize. I'd quote them, and then I'd say, where else? So I'd get my little red Bible, and I'd flip it over. I'd find another good verse, and I'd memorize that verse. And by the time I went, got ready to go back to A&M, I'd memorized about 65 verses. So I go back to A&M. Well, I see, I, I'm trying to register. All the lines are closed. All the classes are full. You know, I thought, yeah, well, welcome to A&M, Chuck. And nothing was going right. So I went over to the BSU, and I'm just going to take a break. So I go over to the BSU, just off campus there, Northgate, and I sit down in the library. And I hear Don my buddy Don Whitehall talking out in the hallway. And he's talking to this guy who was on that tape. I'm thinking Moses is right around the <laughs> wall, man. I'm thinking, wow. I mean, that's the guy. And Max Barnett, who had spoken on that tape, had come through to see Don because he was a guy he had helped a couple of years before. And he wanted to come by and see Don and a couple other men. And he just happened to be there when I came over. And I heard this voice, and I thought, my word, I mean, that, 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 that's the guy. So Don brought him around and introduced us, and Don told him that I'd memorized a bunch of verses. So Mike says to me, Chuck, I'm going down to San Marcos State. I'm going to speak to the BSU there for a weekend retreat. You want to go with me? I want to go with you. <laughs> and I said, well, Max, I'd love to, but I'm not registered. So he said, well, if you can get registered... Uh, meet me here in the morning at uh, 8 o'clock. I'm leaving right here at 8 o'clock. Okay. So I go back to, my, go back to the uh, Sabisa Dining Hall where we were registering, and, and all, they had opened up all the classes. I mean, I registered in 15 minutes. And then I went to my room to unpack everything and get situated, and I had forgotten my alarm clock. I thought, oh, no. So I said, I prayed, God, I pray. I'd love to go with Mike's. I really feel like that would be meaningful to me. But if I go, I gotta get up, I gotta wake up at seven o'clock. I can't wake up any later than seven. And I go to sleep. I wake up the next morning and I go, what time is it? What time? And I looked at my watch, and the, the, the short hand was right on the seven, and the long hand was right between the one and the two. It was exactly seven o'clock. So I got up, shaved, and met, met, spent the whole weekend with Max. Life-changing weekend. But I begin to get a glimpse of what God can do through you. If you're wholly surrendered, if you want it, if you want to be a man of God, if you want what he's offering to you, and that's what I, I, I wanted it. So I, the, uh, that semester, the navigator sent a representative, a student, to finish up his education, but he came to A&M that semester, and I began to meet with him. He would come by my dorm room, 11 o'clock at night, 1130. And uh, we'd go out and sit on the steps. And I, his name was Bill. And I'd have all these questions. And I'd say, Bill, what about this? And he would answer them quoting verses. I mean, verse after verse. I'd say, whoa. Well, what about this, Bill? And he would answer them quoting verses. I mean, we're sitting in the dark. And this, this, this went on night after night after night. So I asked him, I said, Bill, can I be a part of your little gang? And he said, well, you have to memorize at least three a week. I said, okay. Uh, okay. So I began to memorize scripture. I'd never done it systematically. Anything. So I got my cards and I got, my little, I got myself my little uh, future memory list that I had out of my quiet times and out of my Bible studies. And I got myself a system. And every night when I went to bed, I'd take my blank verse card down. I'd look over at my future memory list. I'd you know, turn over and turn, oh, that is a good verse. And I'd write that bad boy out, turn it over and with a reference and everything. And then the next morning, I got up at 6 o'clock every morning. I'd get up and I'd go over to the, my, my mirror, which is above the sink where I shaved. And I, it's kind of ratty, you know, how kind of slight. And so I'd slide it in the frame. And while I brushed my teeth and shaved and combed my hair, I'd memorize that verse. And then I'd go sit out at my desk and I'd have at least 30, 45 minutes in a quiet time. Then I would walk down to the dining hall. And if I hadn't finished memorizing the verse, I memorized it on the way down. And if I still hadn't finished, I memorized it on the way back. 
But I memorized, I started memorizing a verse every day. And there was times when I would go, you know, 100 days and never miss a day memorizing a verse. Every day, memorize a verse of scripture every day. I'm thinking to myself, why don't, why don't people do that? It is so easy. Come up with your system. Why, why, don't you, why don't you hide God's precious word? I mean, by the tons. Why don't you put God's mind into your mind? Why, why don't we do that? I, uh, but I did that. Nobody made me. Nobody checked up on me. I just did that. I really enjoyed knowing God's word. I uh, graduated, and Bill, the, the, the navigator guy, comes to me, and he said, Chuck, you've, uh, the navigators have helped you a lot while you've been in school. I said, that's true. That's true. He said, why don't you go to their headquarters? They have, summer, they have, a, they have a weekly conferences at their headquarters all summer long, and they really need a lot of help. Now, that doesn't pay anything, but you're going into the Marines, so you, you don't need to go get a job. Anyway, you might as well go there. So I thought, you know, Bill, that's a good idea. I'll pay the navigators back. So I go, and I show up there, and uh, they, they put me in charge of the roads. My, my dad was a road builder, so they put me in, well, guess what? You're in charge of the roads. They had no equipment. Shovels, picks, rakes, a good night. Cavemen. <laughs> but uh, but they, they, I, I worked there. And it, uh, it got really frustrating. It would rain. The water would come down out of the mountains and rush across. All the roads were dirt. The water would rush across and cut some tremendous ruts. And I would get in the old beat-up dump truck, and I'd drive that up to Castle Concrete up the hillside, way up there, get a load of real fine material, come back down, climb up in the top, and I'd shovel material out and shovel material. Then I'd get down, and I'd get a rake, and I'd rake it, and I'd fill up that hole. And then I'd get a temp, and I'd temp it, and I'd go to the next crack. And then just about the time I got them all done, it would rain again. So I got ticked off. So I told my buddy, and my buddy's name was Dick Wakeman, I said, Dick, I think I'm going to shove off. This is just not working out. I think I'm going to leave. So he says to me, well, you know, there's a girl here, kind of, <laughs> kind of from your, your part of the country, Arkansas. <clears throat> You're from Texas. And she almost left about six months ago, then changed her mind. So why don't you go talk to her and see why she changed her mind? Okay. So I go to the dining hall. Now, the men ate in one area and the women ate in the area. Now, let me tell you about my wife. She, <laughs> she was a part of about eight or ten gals that were just drop-dead gorgeous, extremely efficient, hardworking, humble, godly. And this table, you know, Joanne and Roberts and Nancy Strittmatter and, and, and my wife, Robbie. And uh, I mean, all these gals, they were such wonderful gals. And so I, I wanted to ask her some questions that night. And so I'd kind of peek in the dining hall. Are you guys? And they'd all be in and drinking coffee and talking and yakking, you know. And I'm thinking the, the men's side is clear. And so I, so I finally just got up. And I went in there and I said, Robbie, uh, there's a couple of questions that I have. And I think you may be able to help me with them. Could, could I chat with you just a little bit after dinner tonight? And she said, well, sure, you know. Well, then all the girls say, hey, what's going on here, Chuck and Robbie? <laughs> well, she said, I don't even know his name, you know. Well, anyway, so that night we sat down, and I shared with her my heartache, and she kind of shared how she had worked through hers, and I decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay. And then we leave. It's dark by this time. And we start walking down the roads, and I live in the carriage house, and she lives in Eagle's Nest. She's the head of that, that, that housing unit. And on the way, I say to her, Robbie, I know that I got problems. I know that God needs to really chisel on me a lot. But I'm confident that God is going to use me in a great way because one morning in my quiet time at 8 a.m., he gave me a promise. I know he did. And I can tell you the circumstances, but I know God gave me this promise. And I quoted it to her, Exodus 34:10. Here's what it says. Behold, I make a covenant. And I'd ask God that morning, God, would you show me what you want to do with my life, what you want to do with me? And so God says, behold, I'll make a covenant. I'll make a deal with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders, such as has not been done in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are will see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do through you. And I read that verse that morning, and I, and I prayed over that verse, and it, it just fit perfectly. I was going on a weekend retreat that weekend, and, and I asked God to show me what he wanted. And there that verse was, and I knew God had spoken to me.
Here's the kick. I, I quote that to Robbie. I say, God has given me this verse. I quote it to her. I didn't know that when she was about a junior at Oklahoma State, she came across the same verse. And she says, uh, she reads that, and she says, God, would you do that through my life? Would you use me in such a way that that verse might be true for my life? And then she says, but God, as I think about that, that's really not a woman's kind of a verse. That's more of a man's verse. And so she prays. She says, God, I pray that you would lay that verse on the heart of the man you want me to marry. I go on my way. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. So I go down to the carriage house. She goes up to Eagle's Nest, and she goes around and knocks on all the doors. Hey, we got to talk. So all the gals come out, and she shares what happened. And they determine just they're going to pray about it, and nobody says a word. I didn't know any of this. You know when I found out about this? We were engaged. That's when I found out about that. So, so anyway, I leave for the Marine Corps. And uh, I get there, and Robbie is, uh, I mean, she's one of those gals that is just, just the top. I mean, she's good looking. That never hurts. She, <laughs> she is good looking. She is efficient. She's hardworking. She's godly. She loves people. She is, you know, I mean, she's got it. I mean, she's got it all. And see, I viewed those gals as just so far above me. I just, I mean, they were impossible. I mean, these gals were, I mean, I told one time, you know, my wife was Nicole Kidman and Mother Teresa rolled into one. <laughs> and that's, what, that's how I viewed them. I mean, they were just such godly, wonderful, and a couple of years older than me. You know, they'd been there for a couple of years. I never even thought about a relationship. So I get to the Marine Corps. One night the DI comes in, and uh, if you, you've never been through Marine Corps boot camp, you haven't lived. So this, <laughs> this DI comes in and said, okay, you blanket blank, stupid blanket blanks, you get, get out a blanket blank piece of paper, you stupid maggot blanket blank, and we're gonna, everybody's gonna write a letter, you dumb, stupid. And so, I mean, of course, that's just common. So we break, I get on my foot locker, and I get my piece of paper, and I think, who, who am I gonna write? I don't want to write my mother. Who are you going to write? So I'll write Robbie. So I'll write her this letter. <laughs> Dear Robbie, here's what's happening. You know, I've got, I got this award and blah, blah, this happened, blah, 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 you know. Mailed that bad boy. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, that's probably it. And about uh, 10 days later, we had a mail call. And the sergeant would come in with this stack of letters. And he would walk in, all right, Mel, call you pukes. And he would, <laughs> and he would have this, this stack of letters. He'd say, okay, Johnson. And he would just throw that, okay, Smitty. And he'd just, oh, blah, blah, blah. And he'd just throw the whole stack, just scatter the whole stack. So everybody's down on the floor. Kind of, kind of. Well, I, I wasn't down there because I wasn't expecting anything. So one guy yells, hey, Madden, you got a letter? I got a letter? Guess what? Big R. <laughs> Robbie. So she writes me this letter. I devour that thing. <laughs> now, you got to realize, we'd never had a date. We'd never talked. In my eyes, she was so far above me as far as her level of maturity, her, what she had, how God had used her already, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just this young buck at A&M trying to get life figured out. And I just, I just, it was just never dawned on me that it, it, anything, I, there could never be a relationship. No, impossible. So Sunday after about the eighth week, we get Sunday afternoon off. So I go over to the PX, a post exchange, and I'm walking back across the drill field, and I'm thinking about Robbie. And I says, God, I'm living in, the, in, the, in a squad bay with 50 men who don't know you. And I, knew, I didn't know any of them that knew Christ, because I talked to a bunch of them. Nobody knew Christ. And I said, I'm sitting here thinking about this woman. I got no business thinking about this woman. I need to be thinking about these men who knew Christ. And I'm living in the middle of what a phenomenal opportunity. So God, I really pray, would you just do me a big favor? And would you take this woman off my mind? I got no business thinking about that. And I hear this voice. Why don't you pray and ask me for her? Oh, why don't I ask you for the moon? I mean, I, mean, I, I just, I told God, I said, God, it's impossible. Don't even, I mean, I can't even entertain that. No, but he kind of chided me. No, no, why don't, you, why don't you ask me for that woman? It just went on three times. I'm walking across the drill field, and I'm, me and God and I are having this debate. 
<laughs> and I finally, I finally says, okay, God, okay, okay. I pray that if it is at all possible, would you see to it that that phenomenal woman might someday be my wife? I prayed that. Went on back to my squad bag. So I graduated. I'm Penn. I'm now I'm second lieutenant. And my mom had brought a group of high school girls up to the last conference at the Glen. At, at, where, where, and I went to Robbie, and I said, Robbie, I don't have time to meet with my mom. I'm out on the road. Would you meet with my mom and have lunch, dinner with her every day and lunch with her and just help her to feel a little bit at home? She's, you know, she's 55 years old, and she's got these high school kids, but there's nobody for her. Would you just make her feel at home? She says, sure, I'll take care of that. And uh, so my mom falls in love with her. And Christmas time, she says, Robbie, you're, and Robbie was leaving the Navs at Christmas. She had spent two and a half years there. And she was going home Christmas and get a job. And so my mom says, well, why, when you're coming home to Arkansas, why don't you come home to North Louisiana and spend a few days at Christmas with us? And Robbie says, sounds like fun. <laughs> Except that old Chuckadoo is up here in Quantico with this woman on his mind thinking, what, what do I do with this? And my mom writes me and says, she's going to be at your home. <laughs> and, I, and I think, hey, this can't be. So I don't know what to do. So I get home, and she's there. This phenomenal woman. She's there. And I'm, I'm polite. And that's about it. I don't know what to do. So finally, the, she's, her mom's coming down the next day to pick her up. Oh, I got to do something. I, I got to do something. So I said, Robbie... Let me, let's get in the car. I'll take you around and show you our asphalt plants and our construction equipment, the highways, <laughs> all the highways that I've built and our gravel pits, and I'll show you what Madden Contracting has done, what I've did, done with my life. She said, fine. So we get in this car and we do all that. I don't say a word. We get back to the driveway. It's late. And I'm thinking to myself, I've got to say something. So I say, uh, uh, it's dark. And I say, Robbie, I... Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I found myself really thinking a lot about you since I've been gone. <laughs> I don't even know if she knows my middle name, you know. She, and she says, well, uh, she says, you know, the same thing. I've, I've, I've thought a lot about you since you've been gone. Uh, what do I do with that? <laughs> so I, so I, <laughs> I, I finally said, Robbie, uh, I don't know how, quite how to say this, but I think I have developed a, 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 a real affection for you. <laughs> I, just, I don't know what's going to happen. And she says, well, since you've been gone, then you know that kind of the same thing has happened in my heart. I'm thinking, what is happening? <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to throw the bomb. Okay, it's time. So I said, Robbie, I believe that God has given me a very deep love for you. And she says, well, you know, the same thing has happened in my life. God has given me a tremendous love for you. We never had dated. And so I, I, I don't know what to do. And so I just lean over and I gave her a big hug. I don't think we even kissed. I just gave her such a big hug. This tremendous woman. And then we go inside, wake up my dad. Oh, my dad's upset. So he comes out. He's upset. It's about 3 a.m. And he says... Uh, and I said, Dad, uh, I'm going to bed here, but I wanted to let you know that Robbie and I plan to get married. Good night. <laughs> and uh, I went on to bed. Well, my mom hears about Robbie, and so here she comes. All the all manner of hugging and all this kind of stuff. And so, and so, I mean, it was, it was, it, it was. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I can't tell you the admiration and the status that this woman had in my eyes. And to say that God had brought us together, I mean, it was just unbelievable. But you know, when, when I was at A&M, I'll tell you about this. Uh, A&M was all male. And I didn't, I never dated at A&M. But one, uh, uh, I, occasionally I'd lay down at my, I had, I had the lower bunk bed, Bill had the top, and I'd lay down in my bed. And I'd look out the window. And it may be a moon or something, I don't know. But I'd pray. I said, you know, God, I, I, I'd love to be married. I really would. But I pray, uh, I don't think I'm ready, but I pray, would you get me ready? 
for the one that you have chosen. You have personally chosen for me. Would you get me ready for her? And in the process, would you get her perfectly ready for me? And at the perfect time, would you bring us together? And I'd pray that maybe once a month. I'd look out the window and I'd, I'd just pray that. And so here, here, here's this woman. I'm just unbelievable. But they, uh, so the next day her mom comes down and picks her up. And you get this, this is really a killer. Her mom says, well, you know, my one big concern was that you were going to go up there to Colorado Springs and meet and marry some Yankee. I thought, boy, you're talking about standards. <laughs> now, at least I wasn't a Yankee. <laughs> but, but anyway, so we, uh, I, I go off to the Marine Corps. And I'm in training again, and all of a sudden I get cold feet. And I'm thinking, Chuck, what have you done? I mean, this is forever. I mean, this, this woman's back home planning this wonderful, glorious wedding, and you're not even sure. And so, I, I mean, I, wrecked my, I, I was really troubled. I really was. I, you're talking about buyer's remorse. I, had, I, I, just, I just didn't know what to do. So I, so I prayed. I said, God, I, I need assurance from your word. God, would you take your word? Thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light into my, my path. Would you take your word and show me how I should go, what I should do here? So every morning I'm reading my quiet time. A couple of mornings later, I read jo Joshua 18.3. And here's what it says. And Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long are you slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? And I'm thinking, okay, why are you waiting to take possession of that which I have done? Why are you hesitating? And I said, okay, God, I got it. I got it. And I never looked back from that point on. I never looked back. Next time I saw her, we got married. We had our wedding. Had a few days in Mexico, and then we hooked up and drove to Camp Pendleton, California. Uh, we got out there, and we got a motel that night, and I said, sweetheart, I don't, I've never done this before, but I'm checking in with the Fleet Marine Force Pacific. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll see you later. So I drove on the base and went in and checked in and uh, was assigned to recon, which was a tough, tough unit. And uh, we got base housing, and so I finally drove back and said, hey, we got housing, we got furniture, the Marine Corps has issued us furniture. We had a bed, we had a table, we had two chairs. I mean, we were just, I mean, plush. <laughs> but the Marine, Corps, the Marine Corps had issued all this stuff, and so we had, a little, we had a little duplex. And so we started our married life in this little duplex. It was uh, about uh, five months later, I got... Uh, Shipped overseas. I got sent to Vietnam. That was uh, Harry. The uh, <clears throat> the uh, the missions that I had in in recon were always extremely dangerous. We were always got the missions to go, you know, thirty, forty, fifty miles behind the enemy lines and find out what the Viet Cong were doing without being detected. And there was only eighteen of us. And if we got discovered, I mean, we were in serious trouble, which, we, which happened several times. There's three different times my whole outfit should have been wiped out, the whole outfit. I've had Viet Cong closer to me than you are right now and couldn't find me. I'm sitting here in the jungle with my around chambered and my finger on the safety, praying that, that he won't find me, that he won't stop, because if they did, they'd kill us all. And I have been, I have been in a Viet Cong village and I walked, uh, it was so dark, but you could see the trail, I mean, the, the pathway down through the village because of the incense lights on the fence post. And I had two guys with me. We went down to check out this village. And that's kind of the way we were. You know, we were kind of John Wayne, you know. We, didn't, we weren't scared of us much. So we went down in this village, and I'm, I'm, we're walking around holding hands because that's the only way you can communicate. And I get to this one place, this big uh, banana tree, and all of a sudden the door to this hooch opens up, and this woman comes out. And I thought, oh, fat. Oh, fat. So I'm sitting here with a round chambered and my finger on the safety, and I'm praying, God, I don't want to kill that woman. I, I don't want to do that. And then a little dog came out. I thought, oh, no, he's going to smell me. Oh, no. And I'm, 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 I'm closer. I'm right here, and she's as far as that chair from me right there, and she can't see me. And I, my mind is a little banana, banana tree, and I'm with my rifle ready. And... Uh, she finally, she's scraping out some dishes, some scraping out, I think, some, a pan. And I think the dog smelled what was in the pan. 
And then she turned and went back inside, and the dog jumped and went back inside. I reached back, squeezed the guy's hand, and we moved on down through the, the village. They never knew we were there. And that's how it was in most of our missions. They never knew we were there. But the, uh, they were dangerous. They were very, very dangerous. They, um, my, uh, I got wounded. I took a grenade fragment in the stomach. It cut me across here. It hurt, good night it hurt. But I, I was the lieutenant. It was my outfit, and so I can't quit. So I'm running around, I'm trying to hold my guts in, and I'm yelling, you know, setting up defensive perimeters. I'm calling in medevac, head, uh, medevac helicopters because I got some men wounded, and I'm calling, I'm calling in some. And so I called the battalion, uh, my battalion CO, and I said, he was named Bad Actor, Bad Actor. I said, Bad Actor, this is Chatsworth, request extraction. And he said, uh, your mission is too critical, your extraction denied. I said, I said, I said sir, the cotton-picking world knows who I am. Everybody out here within 50 miles knows exactly where I am. I cannot complete the mission. He said, the mission is too important. You've got to keep going. I thought, oh, fat. And I'm wounded. i got three men that are all shot up. i got to get out of there. i got Claymore mines. I'm clearing minefields. And, I mean, this is, and so I finally tell the men, I said, okay, listen, forget stealth. Let's just get the fat out of here. Single file, five yards apiece, and let's just get the fat out of here. So we start down off the backside of this hill. There was a Viet Cong village here. My word is gooks. Gooks running everywhere. And uh, Viet Cong, they're running everywhere with rifles. And over here there was another village. And they're running everywhere. And so I think they're going to head down and they're going to set up ambushes. So regardless of which way we go, we've had it. So we got, but what happened is that we went down off the backside of that hill and started through a little grove of trees. And all of a sudden the wind started blowing. Now, this is the middle of summer, and I mean it started blowing. This is in August, and it started blowing, and then it got dark, and then it got darker, and then it began to rain, and it rained so hard you couldn't see in the middle of the summer. And it just poured and poured and poured and poured. And, of course, we were refreshed because we were burning up. We were refreshed, and we made our way. It washed out all of our tracks. And we made our way up about 500 yards up that little valley, did an echelon left, went up into an outcropping of rocks and hid out in those outcropping of rocks. They never found us. And so where did the rain come from? But several times God just totally, you know, one time I got, uh, we were on a mission and we got hit and uh, we were outnumbered about 10 to 1. I mean, it was bad. And uh, I had the... Uh, Finally, we had fought. I'd called in artillery. I'd called in airstrikes. I'd called in uh, close air support with the, with the uh, gunships. And, and man, I mean, everything I could. To, 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 we were just totally outnumbered. So then it's getting dark. You got to get out of there or they're going to kill you that night. You cannot survive the night. You got to get out of there. So I call. There's six helicopters circling about 8,000 feet up there called Rough Riders. I, that's how I ride out. And so I said, Rough Rider, this is Chesworth. We got one shot at this. I said, we're surrounded on three sides. But on this north side, there's a gully that the rain has washed out. And if you'll locate back, and I gave them a coordinate, and if you'll drop down from that coordinate and come right across that rice paddy so they can't see you, and then you come up that gully, I will stand up and give you arm and hand signals. You land on me. And so, Roger Chesworth, and they did. I couldn't believe it because that helicopter is their responsibility. Their crew is their responsibility. And they don't have to go into a hot zone and ours was hot. And so they did. Here comes this helicopter. And I'm, so I, at the last minute, I stand up and, I'm, I'm, and here I am, uh, land on me. And I'm waiting to get shot. And I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder what a bullet feels like. Does it, can you feel it tearing through you or does it just kind of an impact? Or, I'm sitting there, I got Viet Cong less than 100 yards from me. And I'm standing there waiting, and this helicopter comes in and sits down. We bodily throw the wounded on, and he picks up and he banks off, and I'm thinking, he'll never make it. He'll never make it. And he banked off, and he banked off. And I thought, he made it. I said, you got to be kidding me. So we fought some more, strafed some more, gunships some more, called in the second one. Then we finally got down to one helicopter and three of us. I'm one of the three. The lieutenant never does anything that, that he, he doesn't, he doesn't, never require his men to do something that he won't do. I'm one of the three. And uh, we got no problem. The gunships had run out of ammo. 
And uh, I said, well, you know, here, so the chopper's coming in. I thought, there ain't no way on God's green earth we're going to get out of this. We dive in, jam in another magazine, and we're firing out the portholes. And the machine gunner, he's firing. And I'm counting the feet, the, the, the range of a, of a rifle. If we can just get a few more feet, if we can just get a... And finally, I realized we had broken the zone. We made it. And, you know, I slumped down on the floor of that helicopter. I mean, just covered with spent cartridges. And God spoke to me, a verse that I had never memorized. But God clearly said to me, though a thousand come up against you and 10,000 encamp at your side, they shall not come nigh unto you. It ain't gonna happen. And it didn't. I, I cannot tell you how we got out of there. But God just, just did some miracle things. But anyway, that's, uh, I don't know how much time I've got. Uh, You're good. I'm good? I don't know. That's a broad statement. <laughs> we, uh, we got out of the Marines, and, uh, and uh, you know, my, uh, the Marines told my wife that there's a lot of cranks out there, and they will call you and tell you that your husband was killed, and they'll, they'll kind of, don't, don't, believe, don't buy that. If anything happens to your husband, we will come and tell you. So I got wounded. I had taken a grenade to cause a stomach here and was, and my wife, about the same time, less than three days, but my wife gave birth to our first little girl. And so she goes out in the front yard, sits down in the front porch swing, and she's rocking Amy, three days old, and she sees this Marine Corps car drive by. And it goes down and it turns around and it turns around and comes right back. She's sitting in a swing with this three-year-old, three-day-old girl and stopped right in front of her. And they get, it, they get out. And Robbie says, are you looking for me? And they say, are you Ms. Madden? And she said, yes, and waited for the announcement. And they came over and said, you know, well, your husband has been wounded, but he's gonna be okay. And so they talked for a few minutes and she thanked him and went back inside and she put Amy down in the little cradle and got out on her knees beside the bed and just wept, sobbed as she resurrendered me to God for whatever his choice is for my life. And she just resurrendered, sobbing while she was doing it. And I tell people, you know, I went through a war. It was hard, but so did my wife. She went through a war. And she and my dad would sit there on night after night after night and watch the neat television news and watch those planes land at Dover Air Force Base and taking those black body bags out of those planes. And she knew and my dad knew that I was right in the middle of it. And day after night after night, they watched that, praying that I wasn't one of those bags. But that was, uh, so we, that was some good time. Learned a lot in the Corps. They told me there's glory galore in you, for you in the court. And so I, I bought that. The, uh, I went with the navigator. I came, after we got out, uh, the navs asked us to come back to Colorado Springs. My wife had been Leroy Iams' personal secretary and was uh, just a whiz. And Leroy told me later on, he said, what I really wanted, I wanted your, your Robbie back, and I just kind of had to take you in the deal. <laughs> <clears throat> and I, I wasn't sure he wasn't kidding. I mean... But uh, that was a tr Leroy was a tremendous period of growth because Leroy would say to me, uh, Chuck, I want you to go to L.A. and survey all the college campuses in Los Angeles. Any details? And he would say, I don't know. He said, just figure it out. I said, well, which, which campuses? He said, I don't know. I don't know what's out there. I said, well, how many of them? He said, I don't know. Just figure it out. And so I go out there, and I get, I get with Elvin and Joe Smith, and we lay this huge map out on their dining room table, and we begin to circle campuses. I'm talking about University of Redlands, Occidental, Pepperdine. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at all these. And on the next six days, I was on 26 different campuses in, in L.A. And I came up with my list, the best ones, the best campuses down to the ones that, well, I, I don't know. But the best campus to me was uh, UCI, University of California, Irvine. I think USC was about four. 
Higher than, <laughs> higher than UCLA, by the way. Um, but, but I looked at I looked at the University of Redlands, and I thought, man, they're way, way, way out there, and they're isolated. And what a great opportunity to meet people. There, there's no distractions. I thought, man, what would be a great ministry camp? Anyway, so I, I had to figure out figure all this out, and which I did. And uh, that's. Uh, Leroy would say to me, Chuck, I want to minister to Navigator contacts throughout the Western region. Let's have Navigator one-day conferences in different cities throughout the Western region. That's okay. Do you know anybody in uh, Cheyenne? No. Uh, how about Laramie? No. Do you know anybody in Boise, Idaho? No. And so it became my responsibility to go over to the Glen, the headquarters, and get the mailing list for the zip codes around these cities, create a brochure, mail the brochure to all these people, fly there myself, set up the conference, recruit leverage, include help, help. And that was all my job. I never done it in my life. But that was phenomenal training. And Leroy would give me huge responsibilities, and then he, I'd say, well, Leroy, I've never done that. And he'd say, well, I haven't even figured it out. <laughs> I'd say, figure it out. But you know when I got to a campus, when I got to UCI, you know what I did? I figured it out. What do we need to do here? How can we reach these students? And we figured it out. But that's, um, let me see. Oh, let me give you one other story. And I'll quit. I, um, I left the Marines and then we were with the NAVs 11 years and we, I just got to the point where I felt too old working with students. I was 37. I was working with these kids. You know. <laughs> I, I, I remember I was talking to this, I was on campus at OU talking to this one kid, he was 18 years old, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm twice as old as this dude. What am I doing here? Anyway, but I had a hankering just to get back into the business world, and so I talked to Max, and we made that decision. So I opened up an asphalt paving operation in Longview, Texas. My wife and I went down, and we started from scratch. But we had this $2 million, $2.5 million plant. My name was on the note. And uh, we, had to, we had to build up a clientele. We had to get our business going. But we could not succeed unless we did highway work, paving state highways, farm-to-market roads, uh, federal highways, interstates. Unless I could be doing that, I couldn't generate enough income to make my notes. And so I had to be doing highway work for the Texas Department of Highways. So I went to the engineer. His name was Robert Davis. And I went to him and I said, Mr. Davis, uh, I need, a, I need a shot, just one opportunity. If you'll give me one, this is, this is after almost two years of him turning me down. And what he would do, he would write the specifications such that my plant was so modern, it, it, it wouldn't fit. And you'd have to use this dilapidated old plant they had across town to, to make this material for this highway. And mine, mine wouldn't fit. And he would purposely write the contracts and the specifications such that only this old plant would make it. And he was drinking buddies with the guy that ran that plant. They were fishing buddies and drinking buddies. So I got, it, I, I got cut out. So I went to him one day and said, Mr. Davis, would you just allow me one little job? I'll prove to you I can make, make, make better mix. I can make more consistent mix. I can make more mix that day. I can get the job done faster. But just give me one shot. So he kind of rears back and he says, okay. Okay. I'll tell you when you can, you can uh, do work with the Texas Department of Highways in five years. That's when I retire. Well, that was it. I mean, I couldn't recover. I mean, that was it. So I walked out the door and on, on the porch they had out there and down the ways, and, and I said, you know, God, I, I've done all I can do. I, 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 I produce good material, better material. I, my prices are reasonable. God, I've, just, I've done all I can do. And then the thought came, what if he got transferred? I thought, wow, what if he got transferred? <laughs> and so I was just despondent. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, if he got transferred, that'd be great. The new guy coming in might not be like him. And so I began, so I prayed standing right there on his porch. I said, God, I pray that you would move him. <laughs> now that was a Tuesday. I went home and went back to the office Wednesday. Thursday morning, here's a Longview paper, Longview Journal. So I'm looking through the Longview Journal, and about, way back in the back, there's his picture, about a four by five. And I thought, what's old Davis up to now? And I didn't realize it, but it was the obituary section. And the night that he told me, the night that he told me 
you will not bid a job in five years. He went home that night and died in his sleep of a heart attack. <laughs> he never saw another sunrise. I got out on my knees. I said, God, you know, when I ask you to move him, that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> but I mean, and the new guy came in, and like I thought was a, nine months later, I bought out my competition. Unbelievable. But God did things for us in that business world that's just unbelievable. But I don't care if you're a student. I don't care if you're with the navigators. I don't care if you're in the Marines. I don't care if you're a business person. God is, God is with you. you know, let me give you a verse with Jacob. And Jacob said, let us arise and go to Bethel. And I will build an altar there to God. Now get this. Who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me everywhere I have gone. And I don't care if you're in the business world, if you're a student, I don't care if you're... God has been with you ever. He has never not been with you. And I'm going to share some verses on that uh, probably the second session here. But the thing that I have learned so much, I, uh, I love the business community. I love business, doing, uh, dealing with businessmen. They're honest. Uh, they don't like phony stuff. It's got to work, and it's got to work right. It's got to work the right the first time. And if it's not working for you, don't you peddle it to me. And that's kind of the way, and I love that. And so I can call them to a higher standard that way, and I do. But uh, I have an accountability group, and we meet Friday morning at 6, and for an hour and a half. And we hold each other accountable to become the man that God has called and equipped us to be. And we help. We're going to talk about that Thursday morning. But I, I, I don't care where you are. God is every ever present with you. He never leaves you. He has never left you. And He wants to do in your life that which He designed you to be and do from the very beginning when he made you in your mother's womb and made you for a purpose and he wants to do that through you and he has never ever ever left you I don't care how despondent you might think I don't care how down you may be God never leaves you so what do you think uh, Neil okay uh, that uh I've had a good life. I'm 78 years old. I'm, I know I don't look a day over 95. <laughs> I, uh, you don't ask my wife one day. I said, sweetheart, will you love me when I get you know, old and fat and ugly? And she said, well, of course I do. She's hardly. But... But I did. I told her one day, I said, Twitter, I've tried to manage our money well, but if we run out before we die and we just wind up with nothing, I mean, we got nothing. Will you still love me? And she said, yes. I'll miss you too. <laughs> so, that, woman is, that woman is hard on me. But I told one of the carloads the other day, if she ever leaves me, I'm going with her. I have a wonderful marriage. I have wonderful kids. Most people think their kids are exceptional. Mine really are. <laughs> but, but that's, uh, and, and it's all, it's all, it has not been easy. It has never been easy. But it's been good. It has been so good. And I can encourage you tonight, you know, to follow the Lord your God. You know, David has got one last shot at Solomon. He's dying. He's passing it on. What are you going to tell your son if you got one shot at him? What are you going to tell your son? You got one more thing to say to him. So 1 Chronicles 28 and 9, And David said to Solomon his son, Know thou the God of thy fathers, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. Know, Solomon, I'll just give him one more tip, one more piece of advice. Solomon, let me encourage you. Know God. So that's what I... That's what I that's what I do. I seek to know God. I, uh, 
I'm so blessed. But uh, thanks for having me out and for bearing with me as we go through the story. Uh, my story is uh, this, this hick, naive, simple little kid over in North Louisiana from raised in obscurity and going nowhere in life. And then God reaches down on a baseball field and saves me and begins to work in my life his beautiful plan. Well, I just, I am so eternally grateful for what God chose to do. So, and you will be too. I hope you'll stay, I, stay, I hope you'll stay the cruise. It's going to be rough. You know, Josh told us about that. It's going to be rough. But you will never be without God, and God will never, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. You will never go through anything that you can't handle, and he promises you that. Lean on him. Depend on him. So that's what uh, I've done that for the most part and can testify it is the only way to live. Walking with God, learning of Him, leaning on Him, trusting Him. You know, First Peter, I memorized it first couple of months ago, First, first Peter 4.19 says, So you too, who suffer as God wants you to suffer, entrust yourselves to Him. You can trust Him who created you and keep on doing good. So keep your good works up, keep doing that, but trust him who created you. For, but, you know, as for you who suffer as God wants you to suffer, and God does want us to suffer because it is very purifying. Well, I mean, uh, Neil, I think I'm going to go back to my room and crash. <laughs> you, you may lead us in prayer. Anybody got any announcements? Or, Alexa, you got a song in? Yeah.